0: Okay, gang, we'll get started here. So last class, we finished off asking the question, how would we be best to warn a driver that they're about to run into the back end of another car? Which of our senses would be best to use to warn them of that? It's not difficult to put a device on the front of cars now that is like radar and picks up whether you get too close to another car. So, let's have a look at some research that might an- help us answer that. The first thing is to understand this idea of interference. So the, the experiment is as follows. Subjects are asked to pay attention to a line that's going to be presented on the screen, and they have to tell what kind of line it is. It might be a narrow line, it might be a fat line, it might be a dotted line, it might be dashed, it might be curved, whatever. And the color, all right? Now, they're looking at these lines, and at the end, the very last line that gets presented, there's a a tone presented as well. So they're looking at the lines, the line comes on, and then they hear beep. But actually, they don't hear beep. Almost 80% of the subjects did not notice there was a tone, because they're so focused on the task at hand, they don't hear the beat. And it's referred to as inattentional deafness. Because they've got all their attention in the visual realm, looking at the shape, looking at the color, the, those sorts of things, they're auditory. Does not hear the beep. Okay? So, what are the implications if you're driving in this situation? Well, an experiment done a few years ago, there were three conditions. You did not hear any warning signal, you heard, an, uh, you heard a warning signal, or you felt a warning signal. Tactile means touch, right? And there were three different distracted conditions you could have been in. No conversation. Simple hands-free. Simple would mean you answer a question like, I don't know, what's 2 plus 2? Or when are you coming home? Or what time are you likely to leave work? Very simple question. And a complex hands-free would be, well, can you describe the difference between supplemental motor area and premotor cortex and what they do? That would be a fairly complex conversation. So there's the three tasks. And here's the results. No sound, no warning is in black. Touch is in white. Audio is the gray. And the dependent variable, the y-axis here, is the amount of reaction time. All right? How quickly do you react? What do you notice? Well, the no warning, you are the slowest of the conditions. So, no warning is the worst possible scenario. What is the best scenario? The best scenario, the lowest bars, would be the audio. And the in-between, pardon me, would be the tactile, I'm sorry. The white bars are the best ones. They are tactile and the audio are the ones that are in between the two. So what does this mean? Well, to me what it says is, if you want to warn drivers that there's a problem, make the steering wheel vibrate, because you're always holding on to the steering wheel, or make the seat vibrate, because that produces the fastest or best reaction time. Okay. So, you will find, as we go along in in car manufacturing, they'll be starting to introduce more and more of these sorts of devices. Now, we can't measure auditory, in other words, your hearing, the same way we measure your eyes. How do we measure your eyes? Well, where you're looking is what you are actually inputting. What about hearing? Our ears are not, have you ever seen a horse's ears or a dog's ears? When there's a sound, horses' ears will move in that direction. Their head doesn't move, but their ears kind of... uh. What do our ears do? They don't move, right? They're just useless, which is why, compared to animals, we have pretty lousy hearing. So, we need to measure selective attention in vision differently than the way we measure it with hearing. I've mentioned that your capacity to process information is limited. And some students have asked, well, do you have X amount of capacity for hearing, and this much available for seeing, and this much for smelling? And the answer really is no. You have one pie. And how you divide it up is up to you. And I'm going to demonstrate that with with this little paragraph I have on the screen. What I'd like you to do is just read it. All right? You don't have to write anything, just read the paragraph. So I suspect as you read this, your reading slowed down as you did what it asked and felt your butt on the chair. <clears throat> right? And so this demonstrates that between modalities, we have limited capacity. It doesn't matter. You've got one pie, and if you split it up, some to vision, some to sense, other senses, that's all you've got. So why do you study with the music on? makes no sense. Because if you've ever read a passage and you've been listening to music, you really like the music, and then you say, what did I just read? You have no idea what you just read. You've got to go back and do it over again. Not logical. Alright, so let's summarize. Selective attention, or attention generally. Unskilled performers are not good at doing two things at once. So if you are a coach or teacher with novice performers, shut up. Really simple instructions. Stop talking. A lot of coaches think they have to talk all the time. The novice cannot listen to you and dribble a basketball trying to do a layup. Let them do their thing and then call them over and say, Johnny, come here. Do you remember when you were dribbling you did this? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're talking to them while they're doing the action, two possible things can happen. One, they ignore you completely and they do their thing. Or two, they listen to you and screw up the action. Imagine you trying to write an exam and your parents are there. Oh, that's the wrong answer. No, no, we'll go faster. No, come on, come on, hurry up, do that. You can't perform. So, as a coach, as a teacher, let them do their thing, then give them feedback. As they become highly skilled, then, because they don't have to think about what they're doing, they can actually process some feedback. Skilled performers sometimes have attention problems as well. Most of you are pretty skilled at writing exams by the time you get to third, fourth year university. But it's interesting what happens when you get in a facility and there's a weird noise going on. If you've ever written an exam in Tate McKenzie, you'll know the lights sometimes buzz quite loudly. There's other facilities that noises start to happen. And then the hands go up. Can you shut that off? Can you turn it? No, I can't. It's... Why does it bother you? Well, because you get distracted. You're in a high state of emotion, like you're anxious, and it's problematic. You'll see this with performers like athletes at Olympic Games. Who go to their first Olympic Games. They're really good. And then they get into the stadium to perform and they go, holy crap, there's like 80,000 people watching me. And they get nervous and they screw up. Lack of attention because the capacity is processing other things like your emotions. You don't want them. Go write your exam emotionless. Oh, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. Wrong attitude. No emotion. I'm just going to write the exam. The only way we can teach people how to perform a skill properly is if we've measured how skilled performers do it. What do skilled performers pay attention to in whatever the task is? When you do driving, does the instructor tell you where to look? Have we measured what skilled performers do? And you can't rely on what skilled performers tell you. Why not? This would be a great exam question. Why not? Because skilled performers are Nike. They just do it. They don't know what they're doing. They're just performing. How could they possibly tell you what they're paying attention to? They're not thinking about it. All right, let's move on to our next stage, which is the perceptual stage. Actually, it's our first stage. Selective attention is prior to information processing really starting. Here are the topics we will be covering. So there's the perceptual mechanism, the first of our three stages that we need to move information through. And in the perceptual stage, we decide, is the stimulus present? And if so, what is it? And we're going to talk about something referred to as the signal detection theory, which applies to a wide range of activities. Everything from a radiologist looking at an x-ray, looking for a cancer tumor, to pilots in aircraft, to all sorts of things. And what we're concerned with is figuring out, is a signal present? We're trying to figure out how accurate you can be and, in theory, you're not under time pressure. It's not a reaction time experiment, but you're not going to be 100% accurate. It's considered an unpaced or self-paced task. Here's where it started from. Back in the Second World War, like 75, 80 years ago, enemy pilots would fly over from Germany. Trying to bomb England. And England had developed this thing called radar, which would send out radio waves, they would bounce back off the incoming aircraft, and operators in England would be able to either see or hear a sound or see a little blip on the radar that says, here comes enemy aircraft. So they would spend all day and all night either staring at a radar screen like this, looking for a little dot to appear, and this, by the way, is a much improved version of what they would have been looking at, or they would have been listening to this sort of thing. You're trying to listen for a beep, okay? hear a beep yet? Imagine listening to that for hour after hour, waiting to hear a beep or waiting to say see a blip on the radar. Now, it really, really mattered that you got this right, because if you didn't spot the blip, Enemy aircraft would come and dump bombs all over your country and city and your airports and all that sort of thing. On the other hand, if you got it wrong and said there is an enemy coming, but it was just a flock of birds, now you've got another problem. Your pilots go up and they're looking around for the enemy and all they find is a flock of birds, and they've wasted time, gas, It always happened at night, so they didn't get enough sleep. It's really a problem. So false alarms are as bad as missing the the, uh, enemy coming. So a great deal of research was put into this. Why do some people see or hear things and other people don't? So let's, let's take this away from radar and go to something a little simpler. Suppose we have a species of animal and the species has males and females, and we measure the heights of our animals. And it turns out that females are between three feet tall and down at this end, four feet tall. We capture hundreds of them, we measure them, we can plot our normal curve, right? So the average female is what, about three foot six? And then we do the same thing for the males, And it turns out the average, pardon me, the the heights range from five feet to six feet. Average male is about five foot six. All right? Now I'm going to give you a number. And I want you to tell me whether that number, it's a height, represents a male or a female. Three foot seven. Bang, female, right? Five foot nine, male. Very easy to determine. The signal. Is that a male or not? Very easy. Now, the real world, unfortunately, is not like this. And we'll talk about that in a moment. What you just did is you set in a cutoff criteria, which we refer to as beta, which is that symbol, the, the fancy-looking B. All right? Suppose I say to you, I have a number that is four foot three. You're going to say male or female? Based on this information. You're probably going to say female. Because your cutoff is likely halfway between four and five. You're probably going to say the cutoff is four foot six. Suppose I give you the number four foot six. Now what are you going to say? You're not sure which way to do it. You've got a cutoff criteria. There is another component of this called perceptual sensitivity, represented by D prime. Right? Perceptual sensitivity is the distance between the midpoints of the curves. The further apart those curves are, the easier this task is the greater the distance between the peaks of the curves the easier this task is this task is really simple i give you a number you have no trouble identifying male or female okay but that's not the way the world is watch the slide this is the way the world is There is overlap between, it is not as easy to determine, is that a male or not, okay? So we need to figure out what are the criteria that allow us to make this decision. Go back to our two curves. The left-hand curve is always referred to as noise. So it makes sense when I played that uh, audio tape of static, you just heard, that's referred to as noise. The right hand curve is noise plus signal. So at some moment, if you'd heard beep in all of that, beep, you'd say, okay, noise plus signal. Now it makes sense with static sound, but we use the same terminology, noise, if we're talking vision. If we're talking touch, it doesn't matter. The same terminology is used. So left-hand curve is always noise. The right-hand curve is noise plus signal. Some of you may want to just ignore the noise plus signal and just call the right-hand curve signal. Just as easy. All right? So the curves actually have components to them. If you say, all I'm hearing is noise, and that's all there was, noise, you have made a correct negative decision. You said no signal, and there was no signal. Okay? That's a correct negative. You got it right. If on the other hand, you said, I heard a signal, and there was no signal, that is a false alarm. You said the signal was present and it's not. It's like pulling the fire alarm and there's no fire. No fire. It's a false alarm. Okay? The right-hand curve also can be labeled. So the right-hand curve... Sorry, let me go back here for a sec. Notice, the area called false alarm is anything from the noise curve that is past the cutoff criteria. Anything on the noise curve past the cutoff criteria is a false alarm. Same thing with the right curve. We can name. This area is always called a hit. In other words, you said the signal was there and the signal was there. You got it right. The miss area is anything past the cutoff criteria that is part of the right hand or the signal curve, okay? That area is labeled as a miss. Now all of this is gonna come together to make sense in a couple more minutes. So this is what it looks like. Here we have, I know this was a lousy color choice, correct negative, and that says false alarm, okay? So that's the way this is always laid out. And any time you have one of these questions on exams, and yes, there will be questions like this on the midterm and the final, sketch your normal curves like that, label the pieces, then get in and tackle the problem. Okay? Otherwise you get confused when you start reading all the options and things like that. Set it out first, then do the question. Now, suppose our Air Force, in this example I'm using, is running low on fuel. And I don't want to send my fighter pilots up to attack a flock of birds. I really, really, really want to make sure that I do not issue a false alarm. So what I want to do is make the false alarm area quite small. How can I do that? Well, I can make that area small by adopting a strict criteria. And if you watch the curve, you're going to see I'm going to move my line. Notice what happens to the FA area, the false alarm area. Watch again. I'm making my criteria more strict. The false alarm area gets smaller. So maybe I'm listening and I hear a very faint beep. Rather than pressing the button and saying, here comes the enemy, I'm going to wait a little longer until that beep gets louder, or more of them. So I'm adopting a very strict criteria. On the other hand, suppose I'm a radiologist looking at an x-ray, and I'm looking for a tiny speck on a lung that represents lung cancer what would I not want to have happen? I would not want to say, you don't have lung cancer, go away. And two years later, they die of lung cancer. If I'd said, yes, there's lung cancer there, we could have done the operation right away, we removed the tiny spot, you're all good. So, what I want to do is adopt a very lax criteria. Anything that looks remotely suspicious, I'm going to say we better check it out further. So watch the screen again. I'm going to adopt a lax criteria. Look at the area labeled miss. It moves over. The area called miss decreases. Okay. So you is the performer, the doctor the radar controller, the admissions person at a university. You are the one who sets the criteria. You get to move it left or right or leave it where, put it somewhere in the middle. This example I just did with the radiologist is why you generally should not panic if you get a phone call from the doctor saying, we'd like you to come in for more tests. Right? Everybody, oh, no, I'm dying. No. They used a very lax criteria. They wanted to make sure, and chances are there's nothing there, but they want to make sure. They don't want a miss, because if there's a miss, the disease grows for a year or two, and then you've really got a problem. Okay? So, that's the cutoff criteria. You can move it. and. You as the subject, or the user, the person performing the task, have two choices. You can either say, the signal is there, or it's not there. That's it. If you're on a jury, and this applies to jury duty, you have two choices. Guilty, not guilty. That's all you can say. You have the disease, you don't have the disease. Two choices. The reality is, we will find out the answer later, whether the signal was there or not. Was there a speck of cancer there? Was this person actually guilty? We will learn down the road. Okay? And that leaves us with two correct outcomes. If you say the signal is there, so here comes the enemy aircraft. There's a cancer spot. And the signal was present, you have made a hit. Okay? That's the terminology that's used. It's, It's called a hit. It doesn't relate to baseball or anything else. It's just that's what you call it. So if you say the signal is there and it's there, good for you. You also are correct if you say no signal, and there is no signal. It's a correct negative. So two of these outcomes are good for you. You did it right. Two of them are errors. So, if you say the signal is there, but it was not, then you have a false alarm. You said there's a fire, there's no fire, false alarm. Okay. On the other hand, if you say there is no signal, but there was a signal, you have missed. You missed the cancer spot. You missed. Okay. Now, Which of these errors is worse? The answer is it depends on the situation. In the medical community, probably the miss error is worse. You miss a diagnosis, that person the disease festers for a year or two, now you really have a problem. So medicine you would hope they avoid misses when would you miss pardon me when would you avoid false alarms well jury duty is one of them what is one of the what is the worst thing you can imagine happening to you in a court case you're completely innocent and you get sent to jail right we avoid that really try hard to avoid that, sending an innocent person to jail. And that's a false alarm. You are saying that person is guilty, in other words, signal present, when in fact they were not guilty. So, you are a driver in your car. You're going to a friend's place in a very unfamiliar area. You can make two correct decisions and two incorrect decisions, right? Just like we went through. How do you respond in the following situation? You're driving your car to your friend's house. Ready? Have a look at the screen. Too slow. Right? You're driving the car. Let's have a look again. You see any danger there? I see a couple of possible things. One, we've got a pedestrian walking across the street. Clearly, better be putting my brakes on or I'm going to run over them. And then we got something weird happening down here. I don't know what's going on exactly, but it could be troublesome. Now, let's look at you as a young driver and the decisions you can make and those things that are correct and not so good. So, the shaded boxes here represent the one we're talking about at the moment. So you, as the driver, say, there's no danger ahead. No danger. And there is danger. What has happened? Which of the four outcomes have you just labeled? Well, it's a miss. You said there was no danger, and danger is present. Let's take the next possibility. You said there is the possibility of danger, and there is. You have made what's called a hit. You've identified the danger, and danger is present, that's problematic. So you've done a good thing. You say there is a crash risk, but there isn't. What would you do in this scenario? You say there is a crash risk. You take your foot off the gas, you put it onto the brake pedal. Is that a problem? Slowing down when you don't need to. Not really, no big deal. Nobody gets hurt. So a false alarm in this scenario is not necessarily bad. The other possibility is a good thing. You say no crash risk and there is a crash risk. Sorry, you say no crash risk and there is not a crash risk. Yeah, right? So two good things, two not so good things. One is really bad. The miss in this scenario is a bad thing. (laughs) Now, why is it that novices, young people, have way more accidents than experienced drivers? A lot of it relates to signal detection theory. We'll talk about the results of this in a moment. Now, you as the performer, and we're all performers because we're always trying to detect signals, Your performance will depend on two things the first one is perceptual sensitivity remember which of the two letters was perceptual sensitivity got the prime after it d prime is perceptual sensitivity it's the distance between the curves distance between the curves so how can that change Well, there are a number of ways that that can change. It could be environmental, it could be individual abilities, your eyes are better than mine, your ears are better than mine, etc. The second factor is expectancies, rewards, and penalties. The best examples I can give of this are in sport. The experienced player generally gets the benefit of the doubt from the officials as compared to the rookie or the novice player. So in basketball, LeBron James when he plays against the Toronto Raptors always gets way more fouls called in his favor than the third string player on the Raptors. Why? Because the referees assume that the all-star called LeBron James Is right. He's doing things correctly. The rookie, the novice on the Raptors, is just a useless guy and whatever. So the experienced person gets the benefit of because the referee expects that the good player didn't make a mistake, did the right thing. They expect, and generally you get booed way more harshly if you make a call against the all-star than if you make a call against some loser right so this also works <coughs> home team versus away team the home team crowd is going to boo you badly when you call something against their team and nobody likes to be called a loser by 15,000 people so you hesitate to call a penalty <coughs> against the home team but you will call it against the visiting team because everybody goes, yay, way to go, right? So, rewards and penalties in a situation will influence things. The other thing I want to mention, these things change independently. What do I mean by that? You can change your cutoff criteria, and that has no effect on perceptual sensitivity. The curves don't move. They stay the same distance apart. Or you can change the perceptual sensitivity, and the cutoff stays. Or you can change both of them. They are independent of one another. So let's take a scenario. You are an umpire in baseball. And you need to decide whether a pitch is a ball or a strike. You stand there, the pitch is thrown, and you have to say ball or strike. What you're actually looking for is a strike. That's the signal. In our situation. Is it a strike? Is the signal there? So you as the umpire have two choices. You say strike, you say ball. That gives us four conditions or four outcomes. You can say hit, which may, oh, pardon me, you can say strike, and if you say strike and video replay shows it was a strike, you've made a hit. Good job. You say ball, it was a ball, Correct negative? Good job. You say ball and it was a strike, you've missed it, people are going to be upset. Depends whether it's the home team or the away team. And a false alarm, you said strike, when in fact it was not a strike, you've issued a false alarm. Okay? So, four possible outcomes. <clears throat> Let's talk about perceptual sensitivity, and then we're going to put this into action. Remember, perceptual sensitivity, we specify it as D'. prime. When you have high sensitivity, in other words, the curves are a long ways apart, you are going to make lots of correct choices. Hits will be high, correct negatives will be high. False alarms and misses will be quite low. If the curves are close together, it's a difficult task, and the number of hits will decrease, correct negatives will decrease, false alarms and misses will increase. You'll make more errors. All right? So, why does perceptual sensitivity change? Well, do my eyes change from one minute to the next? Not really. So that's not going to alter in a situation. But what happens if it gets darker? The sun starts to go down. That's going to affect it. When you've been driving in your car, would you sooner drive on a nice, clear blue sky day with unlimited visibility, or in a driving snowstorm or rainstorm, Perceptual sensitivity has changed. Your eyes haven't done anything, but it's harder to detect the signal in a rainstorm than it is on a nice, clear day. There are also differences in individuals that pertain to experience, the novice versus the experience, the uh, expert driver. <clears throat> the cutoff criteria is also going to change, but for different reasons. You can move it left or right, depending on the situation you face. And I'm going to try and give you some examples of this in a moment. All right? So you get to determine where you're going to put that cutoff criteria. They are independent of one another, but they will influence all four possible outcomes when they shift or when you shift them. So let's take a situation with drivers. Drivers, the more experienced you are, the more lax your cutoff criteria is. Why would that be? Why would experienced drivers have a more lax? Remember what the signal is. The signal is whether or not there's danger. And if you have a lax criteria, what are you saying? Everything is dangerous. If you have a strict criteria, you are saying only certain things are dangerous. And novices end up in this fashion. Novices do not recognize that there are many, many dangerous situations. The experienced driver does and will shift their criteria way over to the left, make it quite lax, and this is what it looks like. So, you notice the danger there? Okay, let's have a look again. Your driving. any danger here? Yep, there's a school bus. It's got a bar out, meaning stop. How quickly did you pick that up? Are you aware of that? Here we are merging. Is this high perceptual sensitivity versus this? Which one of these two conditions would you sooner be driving in? This one, to me, is higher perceptual sensitivity. It's easier to ascertain, is there danger than this one is. So, novice drivers require a much higher level of danger before they recognize it as a hazardous situation. It's not about the quality of their eyesight. Most young people have better eyesight than older people. It's not about that. What it is, is the experts adopt a lax criteria. So here's what happens. The novices criteria is over here. Expert drivers understand that driving is dangerous, and they shift their criteria way over here. Look what it does to the outcomes. The novices only pick up dangerous situations 50% of the time. 16% of the time, they're issuing a false alarm. They say, oh, that's a dangerous situation, but it's not. The experienced drivers get it right 84% of the time, but look at their false alarm rate. Three times higher than the novices. But is there any penalty for issuing a false alarm in this situation? No. Taking your foot off the gas and slowing down isn't a bad thing. It's not creating a problem. But missing a dangerous situation does create a problem. So what young drivers need to understand is they need to identify dangerous situations much earlier and recognize what they are. In other words, they need to detect the signal of danger sooner or more more often. So, I'm going to give you a, a couple of examples. I want to try one first, though. I'm just going to sketch it before we do this one. Suppose, let's go back to our male and female heights, okay? Suppose I were to say to you, I'm going to give you $100,000 for every male you identify when I read off a number. Okay, $100,000. Now, these are like humans. They overlap, so you're not sure what 5'3 is or 5'5, five five. could be either one, right? If I'm going to give you $100,000 for every male you identify correctly, what are you going to to do to your cutoff criteria? Let's let's say it's right down the middle here. What will you do to your cutoff criteria? Which of the areas on that, of, of the four areas on that picture, do you want to make the largest? Well, how do you get paid? If you get a hit, right, you identify. So how can you make the hits portion bigger? You're going to shift the line way over to the left. That will make the hits area bigger. Five foot one, you're going to say a male. Are there any males five foot one? Sure there are. Not many, but there are some. You're going to identify some females as males if you say five foot one is male. But is there a penalty involved? No penalty. So it's okay to shift your criteria. Now what happens if I say you will fail this course and get a notation on your transcript that you're a loser if you identify a female as being a male? Okay? What are you going to do to your cutoff criteria? Move it way over. Way, way over. So the only things that are male are like seven feet tall. Anything under seven feet? Yeah, female, 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 right? So you adjust your criteria. Now, let's take an actual exam question here. You're a line judge in tennis. When the person serves, your job is to yell if the ball does not land in the service box. Now this ball is going very fast, right? It's like 100 and some odd miles an hour. And you have to do it real quick. Ball lands in and you yell, oh! If you watch tennis, you'll hear them every now and then. You'll hear, oh! All right. So, whenever you have these problems, always sketch the two curves like I've done here. The right-hand curve you always label as the signal, and the left-hand curve you can ignore or call it noise. You don't have to give it a name. But the right-hand curve is always the signal. All right? So, for each scenario we are going to do, you have three, three questions you've got to provide answers for. You need to tell me, is D prime or beta changing? You need to tell me in what direction things change. And you need to tell me what happens to hits and false alarms. Alright? That's what you need to come up with as we go through this. So, here's the first scenario. What do you do? Sketch the normal curves. They overlap like this. Alright. So, you're you're a line judge at Wimbledon, and Wimbledon they play with chalk on grass, and that stuff fades a bit. As people walk through it, it becomes less obvious what you're looking at. Question one, what changes? D' prime or beta? So when you're asking answering this, think about it. Has the task become easier or harder? Or have I changed my selection criteria? So what's happened here? Task has become harder, right? Why? Because the line's not as easy to see. Right. So is this task easier or harder? It's now harder. So now let's answer question two. What direction has changed, occurred? Well, what was what was question the answer to question one was what? Beta or D prime is changing? D prime. D prime is perceptual sensitivity. Perceptual sensitivity is the distance between the curves. You just told me it got harder. So which way are the curves moving? Closer together. So, perceptual sensitivity is changing. D' is changing. The curves are moving closer together. The task is becoming more difficult. If the task is more difficult, what is happening to hits and false alarms? So have a look at your curves that you just sketched. Move those curves closer together. The line stays in the middle. What changes? The hits area is here. Is it going to get bigger or smaller as you move them together? Smaller. So hits will decrease. What happens to, what was the other component we were supposed to answer for? False alarms. Which area is false alarms? Right here, F-A, right? F-A. Is that area going to get bigger or smaller as the curves get closer together? It's going to get bigger, right? That area is from the left-hand curve. It's sliding over. It's going to get bigger. So false alarms will increase. And you can work out what happens to correct negatives. Correct negatives will get smaller or decrease and misses will increase. right? They're related to one another. Like If, if hits goes down, misses is going to go up because they're from the same curve. If false alarms go up, correct negatives go down because they're from the same curve. All right. So you need to answer the next two on your own. And at the beginning of class, we will very briefly say, here are the answers. Folks... Having me give you the answers is useless. If you don't work through this, it's not going to do you any good on the exam. So make sure you do these. It will take you like 30 seconds each one to get them done. So when I give you the answers on uh, Monday, you will be able to understand why it's the way it is. All right, we will stop there. Carry on on Monday. Enjoy the rest of the week, folks.